Our text this morning comes to us from Psalm 24, Psalm of David. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of, of the God of Jacob. Lift up your hands, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your hands, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. The word of the Lord. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for your good and your gracious word. I pray this morning that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart will be pleasing to you, glorifying to you, and edifying for us as a body of believers this morning as we explore the words and the truth of Psalm 24. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, uh, I wanted to start off by uh, telling you all a couple things about me um, that you may not know. Um, but I'd, I'd like to share with you this morning. First is, by nature, I am a procrastinator, a big-time procrastinator. So uh, earlier this year, when Chad realized that he was going to be able to have, be blessed by being on a sabbatical, he, uh, he started to prepare, way, like, just as Chad would, way back in January, right, planning these things out, boom, 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 boom. So he approached me and asked me if I'd be willing to preach, which, of course, I said I would. And uh, so I chose Psalm 24 way back in January, uh, late January, early February. And I remember having a conversation with Chad. He said, this is great. You've got plenty of time to prepare for this. (laughs) Right. Um, And so uh, what that means is for the past seven months, I've had the opportunity to procrastinate month over month over month. Uh, And this is what I do. By nature, I am a procrastinator. I've been doing this since I was a little boy, through high school, through college, and and, and into the current. And so up until last week, I've had plenty of time to prepare for the sermon. Last week, uh, right after uh, after the sermon, uh, that that switch flipped, and it started to run out of time. Uh, So that's just a little bit of a window into, into my nature. Sarah knows this. Uh, so way back in May, when we were celebrating our 20th anniversary, we went on vacation together as a family, and she thought she would help me by trying to have us come together as a family and walk through Psalm 24, which was great. We got to do this on our vacation together as a family, and we read through it. And I remember uh, having that conversation that one night, uh, going through the three different sections of this psalm, and I remember thinking distinctly, this is going to be great. This is super easy. Uh, three different, very clear sections of this psalm. You've got a declarative nature in the first section, an interrogative. I'm using big words that, that Chad uses here. So we've got declarative, interrogative, and then we've got an imperative at the end. I thought I was set. The second thing that you need to know about me is I, 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 love, I love stories, I love to read, I love movie, movies, um, and what I like the most is when there's a point in a story or the point in a movie um, where 
everything changes on its head. Um, and, and everything that you've seen or read up until that point uh, comes into a new light. And you will never be able to see it in a different way again. And a great example of this uh, is, an, in, is a TV series that I've been watching. I've been watching uh, when it came out, and now we're watching with our families. It's the, the, the story of Lost. Okay. Now, uh, I remember. I remember Chad once preaching on a, and he gave away the surprise ending on a movie. But he said that there was a 10-year statute of limitations on ruining movies. Uh, so I think I have about a nine-year statute of limitations of ruining something on a TV show. So if you don't want to hear this, you can cover your ears and run out of the back. Uh, but come back, and you'll you'll uh, you'll be respected for that. Um, but. In the, in, the, in the third series, in the third season of Lost, um, actually, let me back up. Lost is a story about a plane crash. 21 strangers on a plane, and they crash into the Pacific Ocean on an island, and they don't know anybody, and it's all kinds of weird things going on. But the story is told through a series of flashbacks on the different lives of all these 21 different survivors. And you learn new things about the survivors through the course of the seasons and all the episodes based on a series of flashbacks. At the end, the, the season finale of the third uh, season of Lost, you start to see some flashbacks of the main character, his name is Jack, who's a surgeon, and he's kind of the leader of these groups. Um, you start to see a series of flashbacks uh, that are very uncharacteristic of this man, Jack, who is normally a very uh, bold, uh, embrazened leader who, who can lead through any kind of peril or, or um, a tragedy that might be coming on in the island. And you see this uh, where he is just undone. Um, and he has just lost all hope, and he is in a very, very bad place within his life. And, and, and this is very uncharacteristic of this particular uh, character. At the very end of that, of that episode, you realize that it wasn't a flashback that we were seeing, but it was rather a flash forward in time. And so for three years, all we had ever seen were these flashbacks where we learned about these characters and the, and the producers of the show flipped that on its head and we saw something in the future. And now you can never look back on that episode and see it again for the first time, not knowing that it's been changed. And I say that because when I first read Psalm 24, I saw it very clearly as three sections. Now you may have heard other folks call these things different names, strophes, stanzas, and that might be true. But from a lay perspective, these are just called sections. So three different sections of this psalm. <laughs> I saw them as declarative. I saw it as interrogative, and I saw it as imperative. But I've realized uh, through going on this and through studying the psalm more and more that there's much, much more to Psalm 24. And I hope this morning you will see that as well. So let me start off a little bit by introducing some backdrop and some context of Psalm 24. First of all, what we know of Psalm 24 from Jewish tradition, which is supported by the Septuagint, is that this song was, was sung every Sabbath morning during the wine offering that was made at the synagogue in the tabernacles. Uh, we know this uh, in part from tradition. The Septuagint says this because it adds in context for the seventh day of the week. The backdrop of Psalm 24 comes to us from 2 Samuel chapter 6. And I'll read this here. It says, David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Bali, Judah, to bring up from there the ark, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts. 
who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting, with the sound of the horn. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. Notice the reference to the hill of the Lord and the holy place. David is teaching the people how to approach the God who dwells within there. Now keep in mind, it's been 350 years since God's people entered the promised land. And there still is no permanent place of worship for God. The temple had not yet been built. David set up the tabernacle, but the temple, the permanent place of God, has not yet been worshipped, or has not been built. This scene that we're seeing, that I have described to you, is a liturgical ceremony. It's a processional of worshipers accompanying the Ark of the Covenant into the tabernacle and the future place, the temple. This is just a glimpse, but a glimpse of the liturgical life of ancient Israel that we see here in Psalm 24. There's a simple structure to this psalm. Three sections. Recognition, requisites, and reverence. The three R's. Now, I remember the three R's in elementary school as being read, recite, and review, I think. Now, I Googled this recently. Don't do that. (laughs) It means many new things today. Nothing bad, nothing inappropriate, but I was dismayed by the fact that you can't, like, read, review, recite was like the 15th thing down on the list before I got to it. And so I don't know how that happened. But in today's, for today, the three R's are recognition, requisites, and reverence. So let's dig into our text this morning. The first section, verses 1 and 2, is on recognition. Verses 1 and 2 teach us how to know the God that you worship. Verse 1 says, The earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. Paul quotes Psalm 24, verses 1, in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 10, when he's speaking uh, to the church there, talking about uh, whether or not we should eat meat that's been sacrificed to, to, to idols. Paul says in chapter 10, Uh, Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the grounds of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. He says this when discussing this. Uh, Why? Because in Paul's mind, all foods can be eaten. For all have come from the Lord. Because he is the creator of all things. And the fullness therein is lied. So this would have been very, very familiar language uh, for the Jewish circles and the audience and the recipients of, of Paul's letter and would have been particularly compelling to them because how familiar they would have been with Psalm 24 and this particular language. Now, as we see verses 1 and 2 come together, the earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. Notice the continuous present tense of the language there. I'm not a Hebrew scholar by any means. Um, but I've learned from those who are uh, that, the, that the Hebrew text, that jumps off the page, that, that present tense, okay? 
Um, and the reason for that is, is because our creator, God, is an ever-active maintainer of his creation. He didn't just create the world and let it go. He is actively involved in maintaining the constant uh, preservation of his own creation. Verse 2 says, for he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. Now that language is a little bit odd for us, right? Because we all know that uh, the, 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 um, the land, uh, the dirt, doesn't, doesn't float on top of the water. The water floats on top of the dirt. And, and, and David knew this as well, okay? This language is a poetic image of the solid earth rising out of the waters, okay? This language is meant to be theological, not geological. David isn't teaching us how God knit the the world together, but rather he's trying to make a theological point that there's a constant threat to the stability of creation, needing a vigilant care, the the vigilant care of a creator God uh, to keep all things moving together. So let's recap what we know of recognition Uh, in verses 1 and 2, that we need to know the God that we worship. God is the creator God who has created all things out of nothing and maintains it vigilantly uh, 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 for for our benefit. Moving on to to the second section here in verses 3 through 6, I call this requisites um, because this is how David is teaching us in verses 3 through 6 to how to know how to approach this creator God that has, that, is, that has created everything out of nothing and maintaining his creation, okay? You just don't walk up and enter into God's presence, right? So David is teaching us how to do this. And he does this through a series of uh, rhetorical questioning and answering. Verse 3 uh, uh, says, starts off with a question. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? This is reminiscent of Psalm 15, where David says, O Lord, who has, who, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hand, holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. This word translated from Hebrew, the who, occurs four times throughout Psalm 24. We see it two times in verse 3, who shall ascend? Who shall stand? We see it again in verse 8 and verse 10. Who is the king of glory and who is the king of glory? This repetition of this word highlights the relationship between the worshiper and the one who shall be worshipped. We are called to to ascend and to stand. This is a deliberate journey for for all those seeking God to converge on a specific vantage point with other believers and other seekers to stand before the throne. The question, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in, uh, stand in his holy place is answered in verse 4 uh, with, with this, this amazing declarative. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and who does not swear deceitfully. These are four characteristics of one who is worthy to worship the true creator God. These four characteristics start off with clean hands. Clean hands is a representation of someone who is physically doing the right things. So David is starting off with something that we can see, something that that is objective, is tangible. We can see someone who has clean hearts. This is reminiscent back to to 2 Samuel as David is bringing the ark up to 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 the city gates of Jerusalem. 
uh, and Uzzah, uh, I, I believe is his name, uh, I might have pronounced it wrong, uh, but as the ark was slipping, uh, he put his hand up to touch the ark of the covenant, and God struck him dead, because no one who was unworthy and unclean could touch the ark uh, because of our unclean hands. So the first characteristic of one worthy of the, of the worship and, uh, of the one true God is clean hands and outward purity. The second characteristic is a pure heart, the inward purity. We might be able to see the clean hands, uh, uh, the physical deeds of man, but you may not be able to see the inward purity of a pure heart. There's only one other place in the Old Testament where this is mentioned in the specific language of a pure heart. It's in Psalm 73. Truly God is good to Israel and to those who are pure in heart. The parallel here is, is, is Israel, but the concept is still the same. Inwardly, there has to be a purity of heart. The third characteristic, this man does not lift up his soul to what is false. He's loyal. He's loyal to the creator God who is maintaining all things. And he does not swear deceitfully, the fourth characteristic. He has an inward integrity. Uh, so we see clean hands, pure heart, does not lift his soul up to what is false, loyalty, does not swear deceitfully, has, has integrity. There's purity of action and purity of desire, both together. It's not just our outward pure actions, but we have to approach with an inward pure heart as well. What is required here of Israel in Psalm 24 and Psalm 73 is also required of us. We have to have purity in thought, in word, in deed, and loyalty to the one true reigning God. Now, does this suggest that we qualify to be this true worshiper of God on our own merits. Because here in Psalm 24 and verse, verses uh, 4, there's no mention of a prerequisite of faith or calling upon God. And the answer, of course, is no. This presupposes faith. Only one with true faith will have this purity of action and desire. This language, in my mind, foreshadows what we see in Matthew 8, where Jesus is speaking to the multitude and the peoples in the Sermon of the Mount, uh, where he says in one of the Beatitudes, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. These are clear characteristics of a true worshiper of God. If that's the case, what do we see in verses 5 and 6? Verse 5 says, He will receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from God of his salvation. Let me re-say that again. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. It does not say... This man, this worshiper, is righteous in the sight of God. The principle here is that what is impossible for sinful man to do on his own is ultimately received as a gift from the creator God who reigns. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of Jacob, in verse 6. This Hebrew uh, language, such is, is translated... In verse 6, also in verse 8, and in verse 10, um, once again, highlighting uh, that relationship between the worshiper, us, and the creator God who is to be worshipped. This language, the second part of verse 6, who seek the face of God, of the God of Jacob, is extraordinary, considering what we know about the face of God 
from Exodus 33, where it outlines the story of Moses and God, uh, where the, 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 the seeing of God's face is being prohibited. So in Exodus 33, it says, The Lord says to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, Please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and you will proclaim before, before you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes before you, then I will, uh, uh, I, will, I will place you in a cleft, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see the back of my, uh, my back, but not my, not my face shall not be seen. Again, highlighting the fact that man cannot look upon the face of God uh, because, of, because of who we are and because of the inadequacies, inadequacies that we have, the sinfulness that we have in contrast to his holiness. Uh, now, once again, I'm not a Hebrew scholar, uh, but what I've, what I've understood from, from others uh, commentating on Psalm 24 is this uh, verse 6. It's kind of interesting in Hebrew. It says, um, uh, literally in Hebrew, I might, I might be messing up a little bit, but it says, who seek the face Jacob? Okay, that's what it kind of says in, in, in Hebrew, from what I understand. Um, but the point here is this reference to Jacob emphasizes the true worshipers of the God of Jacob. It's reminiscent of uh, Genesis 32 when Jacob is, is wrestling with God. And he says, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Um, and uh, he says in, in 32.26, he says, let me go for the day is broken, the Lord says. But Jacob says, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. And then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is that that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. So let's recap. Verses 1 and 2 reframes us and lets us know uh, the recognition. Know the God that you worship. Verses 3 through 6 tells us how we are to approach the God that we worship. Our third point here in, in 7 through 10 is reverence. If we know who the God is that we worship, if we know now how we approach this God in worship, now we now have to know how to worship this God. The backdrop here, once again, is 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel chapter 5 uh, speaks of how David brought in uh, the, the ark. It says, and, and the king David and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to, da to David, You will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off, thinking, David cannot come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, Jerusalem, that is, the city of David. Now, David had been reigning for three years as king over Israel. He'd been reigning in Judah. 
Now this is, this is when, when David is bringing the ark up to the hill of the Lord within Jerusalem, who was, uh, who was uh, the Jebusites, which was an old Canaanite tribe who created the city uh, way, way, way back. Uh, this is similar uh, in Salem in Genesis 14. This is the same, the same city, Jerusalem. They were still in power when David took the city of Jerusalem. The Jebusites built the gates of the city God is depicted here in, verse, in, in the verses 7 through 10 within Psalm 24 as the conquering king taking back the possession of his enemy's capital and entering it in triumph. Verse 7 says, Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. This word translated lifted up occurs four times throughout all of Psalm 24. Twice in verses 4 and 5 and two more times in seven and nine. This is two to- those first two times, once again, is in regard to the identity of the worshiper, and within seven and eight, the identity of the one who is to be worshipped. Once again, for the third time, highlighting the deep relationship between the people and the Lord. Second half of verse seven says that the king of glory may come in. Ascending the hill of the Lord has no purpose if the creator king is not present, it's not present with them. In Exodus 33, Moses says to the Lord, after the command for him and the rest of Israel to leave Sinai, if your presence will not go before me, do not bring us up from here. The Lord is with them. Verses 8 says, who is this king of glory? If he, is, if he is with them, ascending the, the hill of the Lord, who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. This word king occurs five times in these three verses, bringing focus on God's reign as, as the reigning king. Greg had mentioned earlier that uh, throughout the summer, we have, we've spent a lot of time talking about uh, how Jesus fulfills the office of the king. And this is, this is, yet again, another, another example of that. There's parallelism here uh, be, between verses 7 and 8 and verses 9 and 10. Lots of repetition. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, and the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. Yet again, for the fourth time, this repetition and parallelism is highlighting that deep, resonating relationship between the people and the Lord. In verses 9 and 10, the Lord of hosts here, uh, this, this language uh, attributed to God is uh, the first time out of 15 additional iterations throughout the Psalter, this specific, specific uh, title for, for God often carries a military tone, uh, designating this the Lord of the armies. And again, if you think of it, as that processional of, of, of the ark, that language of the, of the coming conquering king into, into the city, uh, it makes sense how, how, why David would choose this here. Let's recap. Verses 1 and 2 tells us how we know the God that we worship. Verses 3 through 6 
teaches us how we can approach this God. Verses 7 through 10 teaches us how we worship this God. One of the things that I, that I personally struggle with when, when looking at a particular passage of Scripture, and I've always struggled with this, is, is application. Um, and how do, we, how, do we, how do we apply the truths that we, that we hear and that we see and that we read and that we understand from Scripture and apply that day in and day out to our lives? Um, I struggle with this. So I reached out to a friend and, and walked through kind of my thought process of what, of, of what you know, Psalm 24 was, was teaching us. Uh, and, and he helped, helped me connect some of these thoughts. Um, first and foremost, you know, David is teaching the people how to approach the holy God, how to come to the king of glory. And when you look at this psalm, you look at psalm, uh, the, the first two verses, psalm, uh, verses 1 and 2, and then verses 7 and 10, they form a bookend uh, with this united proclamation that the Lord reigns. Everything is his. He is the king of glory who is strong and mighty. He is the conquering king entering his city. So therefore, when you look at the question that's posed in the middle, who shall ascend and who shall stand? These questions are asked in light of the truths that we learn in verse 1 and 2 about who God is and about how he is to be worshipped. It's on a bigger scale. It's not just who shall live under God's reign, but it's who shall enter his kingdom. And the truth and the answer, it's not found in the worshiper. The focus has to be on God. And those who are to, who to come to him into the kingdom are those who fully and completely trust this God, trust and delight in his reign. Our clean hands, our outward acts, our inward purity, our ethical behavior, our own ideas are not simply living certain rules, but they flow naturally from, the trust, from trusting God completely. It is faith for all of life. This parallelism that we see uh, in verses 3 and 8 through 10 points to the central theme of the Psalter. Blessed are all those who take refuge in the king who reigns. Psalm 24 demonstrates that life under God's rule, with its concepts of blessings and righteousness, we see, we see that these truths are not just you know, present for, for the, 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 the Israelites in, in that day and time, but we also see this when Jesus is teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. Each of the Beatitudes begins with that term blessed. Psalm 24 and the Sermon on the Mount show us that our ethics come from what we have seen of God. Matthew 5, 8 says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall, what? They shall see God. So, knowing these truths, when we think about how we can apply this to our lives, how do we live in a way that is one of trust in the God who reigns? I think in answer, to answer that question, in part, you have to look at what we can't trust in. We can't trust in nations. We can't trust in people. We certainly can't trust in our politicians, our bosses, our neighbors, our 401ks, any of these things. 
We are to be formed as people who are disciples of God, those who trust him and him alone. We are not disciples of men who trust on them for their for our own framework. We cannot be those who lift up our souls to what is false, back in verses 3 and 4. Even though um, we do that all too often. Oftentimes we put our loyalty and our trust and our integrity in things that are not of God. That's the problem. We don't fit the description here in this psalm. We need something outside of ourselves. We need Jesus. We need our sins covered. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We need to really trust in the sovereign reigning Lord. Trust in the one who gave himself for our failures to conquer and to overcome. So where we failed, he did it for us. He truly is the conquering king. But some of it was done with sacrifice. The blessings that we see here in verses 4 and 5, the blessings of finding acceptance from God, is from God's grace, his justification, and his salvation, which comes from Christ's righteousness, not our own. His righteousness that is imputed to us and our sin imputed to him. So coming full circle back to why I love great stories and great stories with a twist. Because once you see things in a new light, you'll never see them in the old light again. So now, when I read Psalm 24, I'm reminded of the image from Matthew 21 of the creator king riding into the city on a donkey into Jerusalem, surrounded by the masses of the people shouting, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. The crowds ask, who is this? And they answer, this is the prophet Jesus. Remember what I said a couple minutes ago? The righteousness imputed to us. That wasn't just done on its own. It was done through sacrifice. So in just six short chapters, after the, after the people are singing the praises and hosannas to Christ, the crowd is saying, let him be crucified. I think we focus too much oftentimes on what we need to do. Clean hands. Purity of heart. Not being loyal, not being, having a heart of integrity. We focus too much on what we need to do. And we don't focus enough on the truth of who God is. The reigning Lord, on his characteristics, his holiness, his graciousness, his mercy, his compassion, his righteousness, his steadfast love. So when you look at this song, it all points to the Lord. And our response to those simple but profound truths. So, let us be the people who seek the face of the God of Jacob, who seek him fully and seek him completely. Amen. Father, I thank you. Uh, I thank you for the truths that we learn from Psalm 24 and how on who you are, the creator God of the universe, the sustainer of all creation. And because of that, how we must approach you uh, with awe and with reverence and how to worship you because you are the king who truly reigns. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen.